1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. In The State of Desire, Religion and Reproductive Politics in the Promised Land, published by New York University Press in 2023, Leah Tarragon Zeller provides an intimate examination of ultra-Orthodox Jewish practice in Israel related to the issue of contraception. She captures how cracks in religious convictions engender a painful process of reorientating desires to reproduce amidst shrinking public support, feminism, and new ideals of romance, intimacy, and parenting. Leah Tarragon Zeller is a assistant professor in the Fetterman School of Public Policy and Program in Cultural Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to, her to our program. Welcome.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: Thank you, so I was trained as an anthropologist at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and at the University of Cambridge. And I have conducted ethnographic research among different Jewish communities in both Israel and the UK for over a decade. And this book came out of my fieldwork in Jerusalem at a Yaakov Seminary, which is the flagship education system of Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jews. And the truth is, is that I heard a conversation that would really change the course of my research. And you see, one day I came to class and I found out that one of the girls in the seminary got engaged. Class was canceled, everybody celebrated together. And after a lot of singing and dancing, I took a step out of the classroom just to catch a breath of air. And I listened to two teenagers chatting on a bench outside. They were saying, I can't believe she got engaged. She's going to become the first mother. They were squealing, and the other one laughed and said, who knows? She might decide to wait. So I was really, really surprised. Not only were these two ultra-orthodox girls speaking about contraception, they were speaking about delaying a pregnancy, which I didn't realize was even thinkable because large families are often considered to be one of the most enduring commitments of Haredi Judaism especially in Israel most couples are expected to have a child within one year and they would typically consider a contraception or not having a child in one year to be a failure and when one I... year of,
2: from being from being married
0: yeah yeah so the, the expectation is to get pregnant hopefully very very quickly and within one year. Uh, to have a child. And here I was listening to these two teenagers who were not only talking about contraception, which is considered to be a taboo topic, but they were thinking about not having kids right after they got married. And this was really, really big news. Um, So after I heard this conversation, I decided to start studying contraception among Haredi Jews. And when I would start to tell people that this is my topic, people would literally laugh at me. They would say, you're going to write the shortest book ever, (laughs) and you know if anybody is starting a PhD and people tell that to them, listen, you can write a book, even if people tell you that it's a terrible idea. (laughs) Um, So I ended up doing this project for over a decade. And I'll just briefly say that I think this remark that it's going to be the shortest book ever really reflects this kind of common notion that I admit I also shared before I did this research that ultra-Orthodox Jews always have lots of children and that this was not something that could change. This kind of, this laughter told me that this was the dominant discourse and it was also a social judgment about people who are very irresponsibly having large families. They're they're expected to be kind of blindly committed to procreation. And I realized that I wanted to kind of unravel this assumption about charedim and large families, and to develop a better understanding of a more historicized understanding of an ideal that is located in a particular place and um, time to contextualize this and to also understand how ideals can change.
2: Right. Absolutely. And um, speaking of contextualizing things, so your book focuses on reproduction in the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. Um, uh, but Within Israel, the issue of reproduction um, has become or has been for, for some time a very contentious issue, and there's something called the womb wars. Could you tell us a little bit about what the womb wars are and how reproduction in Israel in general is a particularly political issue?
0: Yeah, thank you so much uh, for that question. So reproduction in Israel, and I would say also Israel-Palestine, has always been political. Even before the State of Israel was formally established, Jews in mandatory Palestine were really fixed on this term called womb wars. And womb wars are really, really interesting because there's a really interesting sphere where both individual and collective survival are really conflated. And the idea was, is that both pre-state and and after the State of Israel um, were established, there were deep concerns that were about maintaining the Jewish nature of the state. So to secure a Jewish majority in Israel-Palestine, state intervention in private life was focused on the production of jewish babies to win a demographic battle now i am not the first scholar to look at this i am drawing and inspired by many different scholars of reproduction in Israel and Palestine who have looked at these different demographic threats. Um, Some scholars also look at the Israeli side, some people look at the Palestinian side, and some look at the interactions between the two. And my work in particular is also very much inspired by Rhoda Kanane, who shows how she uses kind of settler colonial frameworks to look at the ways to think about reproduction and the kind of Zionist logic that examines reproduction as a state for state violence. So, when we speak about womb wars, and I also have to add here kind of post Holocaust womb wars, you have this idea that we need to create a Jewish majority vis a vis the Arab or Palestinian other to win a demographic battle. So, even pre state, and until today, Israel has what we call a pronatalist policy, which is kind of pushing different policies that. Um, that provide um, an easier way to to make babies and specifically um, Jewish babies.
2: So speaking of this pro-natalist, right? Natalist, uh, you know, having babies. Um, uh, speaking of this pro-natalist position of... The the, the the pre-state Jewish establishment and certainly from the, the state of Israel once was established in 1948. Uh, could you uh, speak a little bit more about that and talk about what were some of the concrete policies that the pre-state and then the state of Israel uh, um, put in place in order to encourage specifically Jews to have more children?
0: Yeah, thank you. So, Pre-state, I think the most important initiative was the National Committee on Birth Rate Problems in 1943, so this is pre-state, and they didn't really have um, you know, a state policy because there was not a state yet, but the main thing that they were trying to do was to create motivation, rhetoric, and an ethic, and a morality, um, kind of an ethic to make people have um, large families or to have um, as much Jews really as prop- as, you know, as can be. I think the most famous um, one known is what's called the National Awards for Heroin Mothers, which um, was a gift, uh, a monetary gift, given to mothers who delivered their 10th child. This was something that went on for a few years, and the idea was to really um, celebrate and support families who are having large Jewish families. Now, having said that, we often think about um, this as a very um, kind of broad, we want to have all types of Jews. But the truth is, is that when we look at the history, it's not just all Jews. There were, I would say, a stratified and almost racialized difference between different types of groups of Jews, whereas they wanted to have Ashkenazi Jews that had come from a more European origin to have more families than they had in their home countries. There were other countries, um, Mizrahi families, and in particular Yemenite Jews, who tended to have very large families. This was frowned upon. So on the one hand, there was this ideal to cultivate as many Jews as possible to fight a demographic war. But simultaneously, there was much more of a push to have a kind of Western type of a Jewish family while pushing aside other forms of Jewish families and, you know, handing out contraception, not only to Palestinian, which was things that were happening in the Palestinian front, but also to Mizrahi Jews who were considered unable or irresponsible, not educated enough. And I'm almost quoting here by saying um, some of the demo, demographic demog demographic kind of leaders, then we're talking about, we only want to produce the Jewish intelligentsia. We want to have a particular type of intellectual Jew. And that was where most of the effort was really put. So it's not a uniform policy for all Jews, yes, but it's also specifically targeted towards a specific type of Jew.
2: Yeah, I I have to say, in your work itself, you uh, I feel like you do a good job of kind of connecting what you're looking at in Israel, Palestine, to um, you know broader tr- trends or or dynamics in other parts of the world. And for me, when I was reading your book, I kept on thinking, and especially this part that you were just describing, the idea that the the state of Israel wanted to promote Jewish. Babies, as opposed to Palestinian or Arab babies, but then even within the Jewish uh, uh, um, uh, sector, there, it was sort of bifurcated or or, or um, um, you know varied, so that some. Uh, people were considered uh, sort of um, appropriate parents or, 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 or um, desirable parents, and some were, were were considered not. And it reminded me of a paper I, I heard about years ago uh, related to the Singapore, and that in Singapore there's kind of three. Um, uh um ethnic groups there's uh, ethnic chinese who are uh the kind of elite in um in singapore and the 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 singaporean presidency has been in um you know Lee Kuan Yew who's ethnically chinese was a president for decades and then his family is kind of um you know in charge of things for a long time and then below them are uh in st- in terms of socioeconomic status are the ethnic uh um, malays and then below them and considered um, um, economically and socially uh, inferior are uh, relatively poor uh, Indians and the the Singaporean government was very interested in promoting um, natility people should have babies because they were concerned about the declining birth rate but at the same time they really only wanted or were especially interested in promoting babies, and among promoting natility among the ethnic Chinese, but really uh, 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 um, discouraging uh, uh, natility among the ethnic Indians. And it just seems fascinating to me, uh, two kind of small countries uh, with um, very complicated racial, ethnic, uh, religious politics, having a similar kind of bifurcated or or, or variated uh, strategy related to natility.
0: Yeah, it's such a fascinating comparison. And I would say, you know, Singapore is just one example. In the book, I draw very heavily on this concept called reproductive governance. This is not my term. It's introduced by Elizabeth Roberts and Lynn Morgan. And reproductive governance is really... Um, It refers to the mechanisms where different legislation, economic inducements, and moral discourse produce and monitor, control different reproductive behaviors and population practices. So different countries will have different ways in which minority-majority logics, exclusions, and state violence will be manifested in specific forms of reproductive governance, some of which is policy and some of which is kind of Moral regimes that govern very intimate behavior.
2: Yeah. So speaking of um, the the these mechanisms that are set in place to promote natility among certain um, uh, sort of quote unquote uh, desirable populations or sub populations. Um, you mentioned about this prize that was established for these kind of heroic mothers who were having over 10 or very large families. Um, but then once the, the state of Israel was established, there were many, many more policies and practices that were put in place to promote natility among those who the state considered um, um you know, desirable to do that. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about some of the the, the practical aspects of these policies?
0: Yeah, so um, Israel's model of reproductive governance today continues to very heavily fund child care and family benefit systems um abortion politics are also going to be part of this you'll also see that israel has very very high subsidies for assisted reproductive technologies in fact i remember when i was early on in this research and i was just presenting at some conference someone came over to me at the end and said i'm thinking of doing ivf and thinking if i should move to israel to do it because it's free right so still today we have people who are coming to israel because it is considered to be a place that um, allows and supports um, family making.
2: Jewish um, people.
0: Jewish people, yes, one hundred percent. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book, though, is, um, you know, on the one hand, I am drawing on this um, idea of womb wars between Israel, Jewish, and Palestinian wombs, but I'm also looking at a specific moment where the policies in Israel started to change. And what happens is that this pronatalist ideology that is translated to these policies, it works very well for the state. And we have very high um, fertility rates compared to many other Western um, countries today. But you also see a really, really big difference within different Jewish groups. So what you see, and if I had like a an Excel in front of me right now, I'd show it really nicely, but you can imagine that if you look at the birth rates and you compare the different groups in the Jewish population, you see a huge difference between Haredi women who have six to seven uh, kids on average and other groups that tend to have closer to three. And what happened is that in 2003, Uh, Binyamin Netanyahu, who was then the Minister of Finance, realized that this big gap is just going to continue to grow. And for those who are kind of less familiar with the Haredi population, I will just quickly say that um, this demographic um, growth was considered to be a Haredi problem, almost, as some people said, because Haredim um, are um, are exempt from military service in Israel. They also tend to have different forms of, um, of employment, so many don't go to the army. Many of them um, don't work, don't study in the same ways as other citizens. And it means um, that not only um, are having a lot of... Um, Haredi um, kids kind of a threat to Israel's economy. It's also a question about Israel's citizenship and religion-state relations, and there's this kind of -of tug-of-war, and this kind of Haredi problem. Oh, we lost connection there for a second. Um, Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. So in a way, this um, Haredi problem really resonates kind of age-old issues, often framed as like the Jewish question in relation to the politics of Jewish belonging and citizenship. But also on a very, very basic level, many politicians were saying, you know, this is going to destroy Israel's economy because we're going to have a large population of people who aren't working, who aren't educated, etc. So this created a lot of anxiety. And from 2003, there was... Um, a lot of policies that were aimed at lowering and making it harder for Haredim to have um, large families. Um, I'm just quoting here uh, Binyamin Netanyahu, who then said, you know, that the logic behind reducing child allowances is to stop people from thinking that making children is work.
2: All right. So a real shift in in uh, the thinking and and some of the the policies of the state of Israel related to to having children, um, I, I'm curious because you 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 mentioned in um, in our discussion and and a lot in your book about how you know. People shouldn't think about the number of children that ultra orthodox Jews have as a kind of constant thing that you know this is quote unquote the way it is throughout you know history or whatever, and that you know uh it it it's uh, uh impacted the rate of of um having children is very much impacted by um you know the the social political economic um circumstances and I'm curious, could you speak a little bit um about what were child um uh, um birth rates like in eastern europe um before world war Two? you know where uh the majority of or a very high percentage of jews uh who who ended up in israel they they themselves are there. You know parents or grandparents came from uh eastern europe um what was the the, the child birth rate like over the year and and is it really different than uh these kind of large families that people have become accustomed to to seeing among the ultra orthodox in israel and in other places today
0: yeah yeah it's such a great question um It's hard to make this historical comparison. And the primary reason that it's really, really hard to make this comparison is A, because of public health that has really, really changed maternity rates. It has changed the ability of women um, both um, to give birth and not die doing so, and for their children to continue to live with the support of a modern health system. The other thing that we must take into account is also contraception. Um, the invention of the pill and many, many other things that have allowed a whole different array of uh of components. So I make it so it's a bit hard to make the comparison between historical and contemporary. However, I will say that when we look at the Bible and people always laugh at me and say, Well, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And I say, <laughs> Yeah, but how many mothers were there, right? So, like we have this ideal of this large Jewish family, but we often don't connect the dots and and try to make it more and more careful. So I appreciate trying to make this historical um, bridge between then and now, but I think it's really, really hard um, to do it. And I will also say that when we compare kind of Israeli Haredim to their counterparts in the US and the UK, we still see large families. They're a little bit lower levels than the high fertility rates that we have um, in Israel. Um, So there still are large families, a little bit less, but still large. Um, But of course, these communities speak to each other and travel between each other. So it's very hard, again, to identify and say, oh, this is only in Israel. This is only in the UK. This is only in the U.S. This is only in Borough Park. This is only in Brooklyn. Right. There's an international movement of bodies between these spaces. So it's kind of hard to take one out. But I will say that in Israel, a combination of a post-Holocaust Zionist and I would say also a Jewish law, um, ideal um, that on the one hand does allow contraception, but side by side with that also attributes much, much importance to be fruitful and multiply. So all three of these things come together in Israel with a policy that is family friendly, um, historically allowed um, Orthodox and ultra Orthodox Jews to have large families when in most of the world, people were lowering their fertility rate. So is- Israel is really an unbelievable case when you compare it, um, you'll see countries that have really plummeted in their fertility rates and Israel continues to be um, leading uh, the charts um, on high fertility rates.
2: Right, and you just mentioned the orthodox and ultra-orthodox, and in your book, you talk a lot about both of these groups. And for people that are not familiar with the distinction, could you say a little bit about just what we mean by ultra-orthodox versus orthodox? And how is that different from, let's say, the current majority of Jewish Israeli citizens who are not orthodox at all, who are secular or something like that?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And it allows me um, uh, to clarify the context and maybe also say something about the method um, of this research as well. So in Israel, people typically divide between four different groups. You would say secular, masulti, which is um, not to be um, confused with the UK uh, which also um, has American um, groups as well and then you have like which is orthodox and which is ultra-orthodox what um, combines orthodox and ultra-orthodox is this idea that they are following this kind of authentic version of um, orthodoxy that is very much linked to a more stringent interpretation of um Jewish law. Um, the big difference between the groups is that modern orthodoxy, um, has an orthodoxy have tended to be more close, um, to kind of secular education professions, et cetera. And ultra orthodoxy, even though this is really very much changing, but historically, and also different groups do it in different ways, but ultra orthodoxy has been more careful about the boundaries of their group. And some of that is, um, uh, kind of this boundary making is also about secular employment, secular education, gender differences as well. And we might get into these things more, but I would say that when I started my research, people were more, it was more common to study ultra-Orthodox Jews separately because there was this idea that they, that they live in more gated and boundary-careful communities. Um, and when I went to do my field work and I was going to classes about family making and marriage counseling classes, I found both Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox men and women, primarily women, in these classes, and I realized that I need to study both. So I actually originally thought that I was just looking at ultra-Orthodox, but both came to these classes, both seemed very, very frustrated, they wanted to have large families, the state was making it harder to do so, as well as feminist ideas, gender ideals, there were things that were making it really, really hard for them to live up to these ideals, so I decided as an ethnography that it doesn't make sense to only talk to half of the room, so I incorporated both um, orthodox and ultra-orthodox couples in this study, which is a little bit uncommon, but I think it's growing as the borders become a little bit less clear between communities.
1: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Right. And speaking of your research methods, I, I have to say I was very impressed when I I realized that you had spoken to me. Uh, ultra-Orthodox men about reproduction, sex, contraception, what have you. And I I uh, remembered when I was a grad student, I uh, once wrote a paper about family purity laws and how they're practiced today, including women going to the mikvah to a ritual bath on a monthly basis. And I actually reached out to some scholars in Israel who had written articles about the topic and they're very nice. They responded. And then one of them said, well, uh, you know, this is great that you're interested in this topic, but like uh, the people you really need to speak to about this are women and, you know, orthodox or ultra-orthodox women. And as a you know, straight guy, uh, um, you, know, you, you might have a hard time uh, getting subjects, getting people to actually sit down and talk to you about these very private things. And so I'm curious if you could speak a little bit sort of about how you did it, how you managed to get men to feel comfortable enough, very orthodox men, to feel comfortable enough to speak to you as a woman about these very private issues
0: yeah thank you so much it's it i'm I'm happy that you appreciated that it took a lot of effort from my part and <laughs> like a lot of effort <laughs> um and it's really important to me because i i find that reproduction studies and sexualities these type of topics often end up being women's stories and my interest in this book was the way that state policy shapes intimate desires both of men and of women but i had a lot of challenges here a As you mentioned, there's really an attitude of silence in respect to sexuality among Israeli Orthodox Jews. So just talking about this topic to women would have been complicated, right? And um, I wanted to speak um, to men because I really think that they're part of the story. Um, and what I basically did, um, is that I decided to do couple interviews and this was the creative way I decided to speak to women, but also allow the men in. I don't think that Haredi men would have sat with me by myself, but if I could speak to the woman and ask her husband to join, um, that was a way that I could speak to them. And the funny thing is that I didn't realize that this would allow me to actually watch them fight over their narrative together. So I would ask them a question and they would tell me, oh, well she did this and he did this and they would start fighting. No, that's not how it happened. This is how it happened. So I was almost a couple therapist in this um, research but it was amazing because, you know, some people might say couple research means that a woman, you know, won't feel comfortable to share. Sometimes I also had additional conversations in private but it meant that I could speak to both of them and actually really watch them craft a narrative together which was fascinating i will also say that i also spoke to um to doctors to rabbis to bride counselors to jewish law consultants gynecologists rabbinic experts and i was really looking to incorporate different perspectives of kind of personal experiences with medical and rabbinic all together Um, and i hope that it allows to kind of expose a multiplicity of perspectives um, about um, this topic. And the other thing that was a big challenge for me is that I wanted to create a comfortable place where people could tell me not only about their success stories, about how they succeeded to make a large family. I really wanted to hear about their struggles. I wanted to hear about their challenges. I wanted to, to hear how it didn't work sometimes. And that was another challenge to make people not just share the ideology with with me, but to, to really share their pain. That was something that I really wanted to capture as well.
2: Right. And uh, uh, scholars sometimes talk about the idea of positionality, about where we as scholars are in relation to the, the topic that we want to study. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your own positionality and where you fit into this uh, field of study.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. You know, trained as an anthropologist, we take positionality really, really seriously. In my own case, I would say that my own positionality um, as a mother, as a Jewish mother, as a Jewish mother from, I would call, kind of the liberal Orthodox parts of Judaism, but Orthodox nonetheless, my positionality affects the topics I chose, the questions I asked, the analysis, the theories I engage with and develop in this book. And I would just like to share a tiny uh, story to maybe help you understand kind of the tricky positionality of, of myself in this. So I owe um, a particular gratitude to somebody in the book who I call Panina. And Penina was this like really clever Hasidic woman who I met in one of these conferences and she made me come to her talk because she had read a paper that I had written and I was so, so scared. Um, She gets up on the stage and starts speaking about all the anthropologists who study Kharadim who do a terrible job. And she goes one after another. And then she says, but Leah is different. Leah (laughs) understands us. And I'm sitting there in the room and she says, and she's working on a new study and, you know, go talk to her um, because she gets us. And this comment, she gets us, really um, stayed with me. And on the one hand, I was really happy that she felt that I wasn't uh, judgmental. Um, And I understood that kind of contrast that she was making with other scholars of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Judaism who tend to be secular and tend to be very critical especially in terms of gender and sexuality but i was also worried i was wondering why she was thinking that my work is different is this because i'm an observant jew like it it touched upon my own reflections on my particular positionality um and it's a kind of a complicated um question and i would say it's so funny that she thought oh she's gonna get us because i was actually worried that I wouldn't get them. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to emphasize enough (laughs) with their desires for such large um, families. So my positionality on the one hand very much affects the topics and the questions, the analysis that I offer in this book. Um, And I think it's really important to kind of um, to put that um, on the table.
2: Sure, sure. It's on the table now. (laughs) Uh, What are uh, the cracks that you discovered in orthodox family-making dreams?
0: Yeah, thank you. So I call the first chapter of, of the book Cracks. And the cracks to me are these moments when I listen to a couple share with me often they would start with how they got engaged and how they dreamed, all their dreams, the dreams that they had for themselves, the dreams that they had for their families, for their children. And often while they would tell me about these dreams that they had, they would also tell me how cracks appeared in their, what I call, in their family dreams. And it meant that these interviews were often very painful because there were these moments that they got to say, we thought it was going to be easy. Everybody has large families and it's going to be super easy. And, you know, there's a lot of research on assisted reproduction and how sometimes the success is about infertility or things like that. But in this case, that actually made it harder for them because they're living in a country that if you have trouble, you know, the, the state will subsidize, you know, lots of kids for you. So when a person realizes that it's hard for them, either emotionally or just for the couple, or um, professionally, or economically, or for whatever reason it is that they feel like they need a break, which is often the way that they spoke to me, it was a really painful realization. It was considered to be a failure, a personal failure, a personal fail that they sometimes do not admit to each other, um, and, I, and in the first chapter of the book, I really try to convey some of these stories um, and try to offer some stories um, to showcase this pain, which to some people might seem crazy, like how someone who has six children and doesn't want to have a seven child, like how is that a crack in a family dream? You have six children. Um, but it's also, I think, as an ethnographer, you try to understand a culture. And for some people, even after they have six children, the seventh child can be a huge ethical deliberation, even if you've already had six. So we have to kind of understand this in a specific context where that's part of their dream to have 12 kids and not two.
2: Right, right. And what are uh what dilemmas arise when Orthodox families quote fail to attain their dream uh, family size?
0: Yeah. So um, there's a lot of dilemmas, and it of course depends on the couple. I would say that I probably highlight two um that are um, um less in the front of research. And the first one is economic difficulties. There have been, as I said, um, a lot of policies that have made it harder for Kharadim, um, to, um to enjoy the child benefits that were helping them sustain large families. And when couples realize that they can't make ends meet, right? So that's an ethical deliberation because they were taught that you just have a large family and you make it work. But when you don't have money to feed your kids, when you're scrapping vegetables, you know, at the supermarket at the end of the days and asking to just take everything as cheap as possible. And I would go into rooms with like rickety beds and sofas that were ripped and, you know, things that that were really, really um, hard if you tell yourself that you're supposed to do everything you can to have a large family. So that's quite an ethical deliberations for some of the couples. In Israel, it's often considered to be, you know, a leap of faith to have children. So you do what it takes. Um, and that the economic thing was another one. The other one that I speak a lot about um, in the book is also bodily difficulties. So having a lot of kids comes at a big At a big toll on the body. And even though there's, um, I I describe in the book, um, religious gynecologists to make women feel as beautiful as they can, even though their bodies are filled with stretch marks and other things that make it really hard for them to look themselves in the mirror, um, sometimes the body uh, takes place as well. It was really interesting for me as well. You know, I really remember interviewing this one guy who was the, I think the oldest child in his family, and his mother was constantly in the hospital. Every time she got pregnant, she was bed rest. And when he got married, he promised himself, I'm not going to let my wife go through that. And it was almost his traumatic experience as a child, watching his mother suffer to have so many kids that he realized that he doesn't want to do the same thing for him and for his family. So that was really interesting for me to see. And it was also interesting to see the male perspective who was worried for his wife and for what it entailed for her body.
2: Right. And uh, you you have this idea of repro-theologies. What are repro-theologies and how do they help couples reconcile competing reproductive desires?
0: Yeah, so the the work on repro-theologies is... It's my effort to show, I think, that um, theology is not only made by rabbis, it's not only made by educators, it's made often in everyday um, life. And to some extent, part of what I'm trying to do in my book, so the chapter in Repro Theology is the chapter where I show what happens to couples that are struggling in their own homes and they're trying to go to these educators who they want to help. Um, and things like that. But um, they go and they get these different theologies about what reproduction means. And in these places, they'll find educators that will teach them to continuously do whatever it is that they can to continue to have large families. But there are also challenging ideas about parenthood today where um, rabbis and female uh, rabbis um, or rabbinot, as we would probably say in Hebrew, are trying to teach people that also using birth control can be something um, that is not only allowed, but sometimes might even be um, preferable. And it's um, it was really interesting for me um, to see, um, when I kind of think about this repro theology, there's been like a growing interest in anthropology and theology to kind of look at these encounters between kind of the everyday and theology making, because when we think about these ethical deliberations, people aren't only navigating between um, ec- the ec- you know economic questions and their body; they're also asking questions about God and about how God intervenes in their lives and things like that. So it's not just kind of financial or bodily reorientations and i speak about this as ethical choreographies in the book but it's also kind of bringing god into the picture and it's really interesting because some people will speak about birth control as like a gift from god some people will do the opposite but in all of those cases god is part of the equation god is part of their reproductive decision making sometimes in really surprising ways could you talk more
2: about the surprising ways where you you wouldn't think that God would show up there, and then you know uh, magically or whatever, God ends up being a part of of that discussion and is sort of used in a way to help maybe justify or clarify people's decision making.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. So I actually am happy to share one of my favorite stories, and it's a story that happened in different variations throughout the research. But I'm in the book I call. Um, I called the woman who I heard this story from first Esther, and she was telling me that after her fourth child, she wanted a break. The hormones were driving her crazy and she did not want to use an IUD. That was just an unbearable thought for her. So she tells me at the end, I found the perfect method of birth control, the diaphragm. It was perfect. She says it had a 96% success rate. I didn't want another pregnancy. I wanted to try to prevent another one. But if there really is a soul that wants to come down into this world, who am I to stop it? And I love this because what she was doing here is she was taking kind of modern statistics to enable this kind of optimal contraceptive choice. And what she was doing is that she was saying, if I use a diaphragm and it's only 96% success rate, it allows me to, you know, use birth control because I don't really want a child right now. But it also allows me to keep four percent for unborn souls for god and it's really really interesting because usually if a woman is using birth control and ends up having a child we would call that an unintended pregnancy right that's we would use that type of binary language but what she does in her story and the way she speaks about it is that she really blurs this distinction between wanted and unwanted and what she does is she says I don't really want a child, but I'm leaving space for God. I'm leaving space for unborn souls. And this strategy allows for this amazing situation in which a child born to a mother who's using birth control is still wanted, still intended, and even planned, some might say. So it's really, really interesting. These really creative ways in which God is brought into the picture, and here only 4%, But you can see this really interesting ethical choreography that brings together God, modern science, statistics, hormones, birth control in this really creative way in which I call it in the book a gray zone, in which they're also making their own decisions, but they're also bringing in other agents to help as well, which I found fascinating.
2: All right, that really is fascinating. Speaking of other agents and creativity, um, you mentioned rabbis before. What role do rabbis play in couples' decision-making regarding reproductive um, matters? And in particular, do couples always accept the religious rulings of rabbis regarding
0: reproductive practices? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. And thank you for waiting with this question until now and not asking me at the beginning, because I'm often asked that question at the beginning, because there's just some expectation that rabbis control everything. So my, <laughs> my, you know, <laughs> what I what I'd like to share is that people spoke to rabbis when they were debating a lot, a lot, even couples that, you know, were less stringent in other things and, you know, it seemed to me that going to rabbis was really, really prevalent among my participants, and I was surprised. The extent of it surprised me. And one of the things that I argue in this book is that people aren't going to rabbis only for them to make decisions. First of all, I argue people are going to rabbis because this is a taboo topic and they need a safe and ethical space they need an ethical language to speak about a topic that they're not used to speaking about. So in that way, Jewish law is almost offering an ethical language to speak about something that has been silenced. Questions about sexuality are not things that they're used to talking about. So going to the rabbi, first and foremost, is to speak in an ethical and kosher way about a very intimate decision. decision. Second of all, when they speak to rabbis, I found that a lot of them shopped around to find the right rabbi. So I speak about shopping uh, for rabbis in this book and some of my other work. And what I found really, really interesting is that um, you know that not only did people shop around, but that sometimes rabbis would tell them to do X and they did the opposite, meaning they weren't only shopping around to um, to find the right decision. And there's some ideas that. You know if a rabbi tells you to do something you have to do it but that was not the case in here it really seemed that they were struggling a lot and sometimes the couples that found it hard to make decisions shopped around till they kind of got it out of their system till they spoke about it enough and then things worked for them. Having said that, I will say that there is um, a big difference between what happens when a couple comes together, when a woman goes by herself, when a husband goes by themselves. Sometimes a couple will have uh, a prior relationship with a rabbi, or the husband will have a prior relationship with a rabbi. And then sometimes there are very powerful dynamics you know I speak about people in the book who end up having children because the rabbi did say so, and that creates a really, really hard thing as well. So I also show people who are kind of shopping around. and I also do show um, other stories where rabbis um, have a big say on woman's life and some of which are very happy for rabbis to do so, and some of which look back and reflect on that and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to allow people control me in that way. So there's really, a lot of different ways in which people um, spoke to rabbis. Um, yeah, and I would love to hear um, what, what you know, the people I interviewed thought about, <laughs> about the question <same laughs> <else. laughs>
2: right, Sure, sure. Uh, how are orthodox religious elites rethinking reproductive obligations these days?
0: Thank you. I'm really happy for that question because one of the things that I, you know, I expected rabbis to come, to be part of this conversation but I didn't expect to find a big difference between the religious li- elites and the less privileged um, groups and this is something that you know you listen to people in interviews and you realize sometimes things that you had no idea um, before and what I found is that you know different couples were trying you um, think about different ways to go ahead with making families and when i tried to look at that i found a process of stratified reproduction which is not my term but in this context shows that um, the ability of a couple sometimes to get off that path of a large family was based on social economic and religious capital and what i found is that these elites were um engaging in private strategies of secrecy to diverge from norms without publicly contesting them. And this type of hushed critique really creates hidden power relations by which some people are empowered to nurture and reproduce while others are not. And even though stratified reproduction typically links between social capital and actually having children, in the book, I flip this direction and I show how religious elites um critique reproductive norms secretly creating a distinction between different subgroups and it's specifically the newcomers the chuzrim bettshuva uh, in English i would i would call that the returnees people who did not grow up orthodox but became later in life And they were the ones who were least likely to critique these communal norms. And as these elite members secretly have less children or even just widen the breaks between each pregnancy, they have more time to invest in parenting. They have more time to focus on their own relationships. They have the ability to put more energy towards their professional advancement. And these less privileged groups have less social capital and I think also because they're new, they feel like they can. They're, it's harder for them to secretly fail. And the most tragic thing is that often returnees didn't grow up with large families. So they don't know how to handle these families. And they also often don't have the parent support or their sibling support to have these large families. So not only are the religious elites lowering the numbers of their kids, widening the gaps of contraception. they're creating the situation in which these newcomers are continuing to have large families because they don't realize that Jewish law has much more gray in it than they were taught. Um, It's much harder for them. The burden on them is much bigger. It's harder for them. And this to me was one of the tragic moments of my research that I realized that the price that is being paid for this hushed change in having large families The price was not being paid by the religious elites. The price was being paid by those who were less privileged. And that was painful to hear. And when I spoke to rabbis about it, they often knew. It's not like I was the only one who was finding this out. And you know what they told me once they said, you know, the newcomers, they pray all the time in Davening. People who've been around, you know, we chat during prayer. And the other people, they daven properly, they pray properly. And they were using this to tell me, you know, maybe at some point they'll realize that there's more diversity. But it really, it made me quite upset that, you know, because this is considered to be a hidden and taboo topic, the rabbis were not speaking publicly about this. And it was really hard for some of the couples that I spoke to. And yeah, I found it extremely painful.
2: Right, right. That is both very sad and, and also really a fascinating dynamic. Um, I'm curious if you could just clarify when you say religious elites, like what exactly made though that subset of the ultra-Orthodox population elite compared to other portions of the old, ultra-Orthodox population?
0: Yeah, no, that's such a great question because, you know, when I was doing this research, I thought that I might find a clear distinction between like Ashkenazi and Mizrahi, which is, kind of this eastern western european origin thing that we spoke about a little bit at the beginning that did not come out as this clear distinction the clear distinction for me was more learned elites people who knew jewish law people who knew to go back to the talmud and to other response and say you know what, it's actually only two kids that were obligated. Everything else is much more gray. It's not, you know, there's a machloket, there's a dispute about how much we're really obligated. And this question of being able to say, are we really obligated? What are the limits of our obligation? The ability to critique that, to think about that, was something that also seemed to come more... um, more naturally to people who had spent more time in the Bet Midrash who felt more comfortable with that. And also I think people who had less to lose. So people who come from more elitistic um, families, either in terms of their kind of learned status or their economic status, their position in society was much more clear. And even if they played a little bit, it wasn't such a big deal. They didn't feel like it would um, reflect bad on them. But social pressure is very much part of life in Orthodox communities. And the elite families might have been worried, but the newcomers really wanted to convince their peers that they are fully in. And I think it was harder for them to admit to themselves and to admit to other people that they were failing. So it was just much harder for them. Um, and I think that's why this thing came out so clearly. And I have to say, when we're talking about birth control, nobody knows why a couple isn't having another child right it can be that they're suffering from infertility it can be other things if you don't tell anybody then people won't know and one of the most fascinating moments i had in this research was when i spoke to this couple that when they got engaged the husband told the wife let's wait and she almost had a heart attack like what what's wrong with my husband and he said you know i come from a large family I don't want to have kids immediately. Let's take, you know, let's have a little bit of time to build our relationship, to create a quiet house. And she's like, oh, my God, we need to go to the rabbi. Like, this is terrible. So this couple goes to the rabbi and the rabbi looks at her and the husband and says, if you guys want to wait, be my guest. And she doesn't believe her. aunt. She can't believe it. And the husband and the rabbi talk about the halakha, they talk about Jewish law and that it's more complicated. And if you need some time, it's okay. This is a Haredi rabbi. And what I found amazing about the story is not only that moment, but the moment that she comes home, she doesn't tell anybody that she's on birth control. Okay, she won't tell anybody. And after a while, people start praying for her. So people come to her and say, we're praying for you. We know that you'll succeed. Don't worry, you're going to be fine. And she actually had a car accident. People thought that something happened to her. And she tells me, you know, I felt so bad, but it was a great year.
2: (laughs) <laughs> That's really phenomenal. I mean, it's like there's a co- comedic aspect to it, but it's also really kind of powerful and poignant, the idea that someone makes a conscious decision to avoid getting pregnant, but that because it's a secret what, what she's doing, other people assume that she's upset or sad about her uh, lack of 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 children, or lack of being pregnant, and therefore they go and pray for her to become pregnant. That's really that's really quite quite fascinating. Um, we're uh there's so much more to talk about, but we are um uh, uh running out of time. So here's one last question. Um, I'm curious what you hope readers take away from your book.
0: Hmm, that's a big one for the end. Um, Okay, so there are a few takeaways. This book doesn't have one thing, and I'm hoping that people will read it in different ways that are helpful for them. Um, This book is about the ways our most intimate desires are shaped by state policy. Desire has occupied the thoughts of philosophers, psychologists, but there's very little social science about desire, and I hope that readers will be inclined to take up this call to think more seriously about Um, the ways culture shapes us. In this book, I also really want to try to pay attention not only to the way culture shapes us, but to the way people push back, even in really conservative and religious um, groups. A lot of the work on Haredi Jews that shows agency often highlights moments where they leave um, the fold, and this book showcases um, that there are multiple ways to walk within Orthodox Judaism, and this kind of inner variety is important for me to expose, and it also allows us to look at these kind of inner communal hierarchies I also want to say that I really hope that this book calls um, for more um, religion and reproduction works. Religion is often sidelined in studies of reproductive politics. And I argue here that religion really matters in the study of the state. The recent overturn of Roe versus Wade in the, in the American Supreme Court is a clear reminder of how religion and the state cannot be separated especially in the context of reproduction and finally my takeaway is also methodological i really want to incorporate male perspectives in reproduction Um, and i'm also calling for more works in reproduction that don't only look at high-tech repo technologies such as ivf but since the invention of the pill we still don't fully understand how people engage with contraception even though they use it much more than they use ivf Um, And my book is another um, push to try to challenge the the dichotomies of this kind of discourse of planned versus unplanned, um, kind of very rational choice modes. And I think that kind of amidst a global ecological disaster (laughs) uh, that's all about uncertainty, grasping a better understanding of how people make decisions amid ethical uncertainty seems to me really, really urgent.
2: Right. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Well, okay. I I I lied. I lied. I, I have to ask you another question because <laughs> I, I I I I just have to because you the, the, I mean everything you said was was uh so was so fascinating. But the first a uh, part of what you were saying about how um you know uh, ultra orthodox Jews um you know might be changing um. Uh, you know how they they make these kinds of decisions and what their family size looks like, and it just got me thinking. You know, um, I, I've thought about this question of kind of the boundaries of ultra orthodox Judaism. So um, another big topic um, with in ultra orthodox Judaism is uh, in like in America, for instance, is the issue of the the limits or lack of secular education among ultra orthodox um, children and and schools and. As a sociologist, I've struggled with this question, you know, well, what happens if they had more secular education, you know, would that, you know, fundamentally change ultra-Orthodoxy itself? You know, in other words, is there a kind of breaking point that if they were being taught as much as, you know, their, their non-Orthodox, non-Ultra-Orthodox or non-Orthodox, um, non-Jewish, you know, counterparts, would ultra-Orthodox Judaism, ultra-Orthodox communities change in some fundamental way, you know? And I'm just thinking about your book and everything that you're saying, and I'm wondering, well, what happens if, you know, um, uh, 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 many or most ultra-Orthodox Jewish couples end up you know, whether it's based on the theology or the economic situation and, you know, whatever the dynamics are at play, you know, if they really end up curtailing their, um, um, you know, their their birth rates, and then suddenly you have ultra-Orthodox families that have two children, you know, uh, like, like I, I, you know, I, like A, it may be hard for any of us to kind of imagine, you know, what, what that would look like just given our own, you uh, know, um, Uh, assumptions about what ultra-orthodox families are currently. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, like, not so much, I guess, if this is really possible, if this is going to happen anytime soon, but if you have any thoughts about how, if it did happen, you know, would that change something fundamental about ultra-orthodox families and ultra-orthodox communities or do you feel well these things are just compatible you know they used to have large families now they have small ones you know and 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 that this is not uh going to change something fundamental about these communities
0: yeah thank you what what a fun question to end with um thank you so much i you know obviously my answer is that i do not know but part of (laughs) but what i really enjoyed you know, as a scholar was watching people push the limits, not only of what they do, but of what they desire. Like to me, that was the most fascinating thing. And people often ask me, why is it desire that you're interested in? Like, why isn't right at the end of the day, it's about family making. It's about contraception. Why is this about desire. And the reason that I was so interested in desire is also because of Sarah Ahmed that we didn't get to speak about too much. But, you know, she speaks about this concept of desire lines. And it's a brilliant concept because it comes from geography. And it's this idea that we have lines that are expected of us. And then we have desire lines and desire lines are lines made by our desires so if you imagine walking in the park and then there's the path that's already there and then there's a path that's made by people who walked a different way sarah ahmed calls it a desire line a line made by desires and one of the things that i enjoyed the most in this project was watching how different desires unfolded and it was hard because they didn't know where that path was going to take them. They felt like they were coming against something that was so central. It's not like in my work or in ILA Fader's work on Hidden heritages. This isn't about leaving the fold. It's not a desire to not be religious. It's a desire to go against something like you described so beautifully that is so fundamental that it's almost similar to that. And I watched how couples admitted to themselves, to their to their husbands or wives, to their friends, that we want to do something different. And I watch them cultivate that, where it's going to go, I don't know. But as a social scientist and as anthropologist, I am so interested in continuing to watch these types of changes occur and to watch other scholars take on this call to look at how other desire lines come to be.
2: Right. Well, that's, that's really a great answer. Thank you so much uh, for all of your uh, insights. And thank you so much for taking your time to share thoughts with us today. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.